Our Old Testament reading today, preparing for our Gospel reading, comes from the 107th Psalm, verses 23 to 32. Psalm 107, 23 to 32, which sets the stage historically and literarily for what we read in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Psalm 107, 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. And now we come to Luke chapter 8 beginning at verse 22. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Who then is this, they ask each other. Who then is this? When applied to the man Jesus of Nazareth, it's the first and the last and the very best of questions you can ask. It's really not too much to say, beloved, that if you cherish within you the bright, shining hope of eternal life and not the eternal death that your sins and mine naturally deserve, if you cherish that blessed hope of abounding grace, then it's an absolutely necessary question. You must ask it. And not only ask it, 
But answer it. Answer it truly and biblically and with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Beloved, ask of your Bible this question. Demand of your Bible the answer and don't stop reading your Bible until it has coughed up to your satisfaction the answer to this question. Who then is this Jesus? And then once you've mined all the treasures there are to mine in its pages, as you emerge from the biblical depths into the bright sunshine of your daily life and relationships, make the Bible's crystal clear answer a living, breathing part of you. Wear it as a jewel set in gold filigree around your neck. Integrate the Bible's teaching on this all-important question into your thinking, into your feeling, into your decisions, into your words and your deeds and your character. Make it a part of you. Let the towering answer to this question shape your whole world view and every fiber of your being resonate with the answer. This is who Jesus is. Because a day is coming, beloved, sooner than you may think. The day is coming when you'll have lost the recollection of virtually everything else you've ever known. I'm thinking of those Ecclesiastes chapter 12 years. Those years that draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. When you don't recognize anymore the face of a lifelong friend, of a brother, a sister, a wife, a husband. Time and old age and ultimately death sweep away along with this old mortal tabernacle everything else there is to know. But when I stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, I'll want to have the answer to that question on the very tip of my tongue. Don't leave here today without the answer to the question, Who then is this? The problem is, so many people never get around to asking it. They don't feel within themselves the compelling, absolutely imperative force of it. Their calendars are so full of other things. The distractions of life, the distractions of living, most of which no doubt are very legitimate. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But in such very innocent ways, the 24-7 lifestyle just gets too busy to get around to asking. And there are many more who, under the influence of some fleeting religious impulse, do give the question an occasional thought. Their problem is that they don't then follow through. They don't track down the biblical answer with the bloodhound persistence that the question really deserves. So for years it just stays there, simmering on the back burner of their minds, unanswered. Who is this Jesus? But our lives pass away so quickly. 
And the busier they are, the quicker they go. But this one fundamental question of time and eternity never goes away. Who then is this? In the case of the disciples on that particular day, it's not hard to see what prompted the question. Here they are in Capernaum. Jesus winds down another day of teaching there at the lakeside. And at the end of it, he says, hey, let's go for a ride. Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Here we have four able seamen in Peter and Andrew and James and John. We've got these eight other young men ready to lend them a hand if they need it. And we've got the boat. Let's go. Let's cross over. And such was the respect these young men had for their rabbi that they didn't even feel the need to know exactly where they were going or why. It's enough that the master wants to go over to cross the lake, so up go the sails to catch the northerly breeze, and off they go. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That a man like Jesus needs his sleep. that he catches it whenever and wherever he can, even on the hard wooden bench in the stern of a boat. It's amazing all these simple, routine human needs he has, just like us. After all, we've come to expect so much of him. Every day seems to bring with it some new evidence that this isn't just your run-of-the-mill rabbi. Jesus teaches with absolute biblical authority and he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he forgives sins. And then there was that day on the road outside Nyan when he raised the widow's son from the dead. There are wonders at every turn in the life and ministry of this man. Here we are now, well into the eighth chapter of this gospel and it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that the question hadn't come up for discussion long before this. The man's amazing. He's astounding. And yet here he is, stretched out, sound asleep in the stern of the boat just as soon as we leave the dock. Human nature, of course, is possessed of some pretty strange quirks. One of them, I think, accounts for the fact that their question, who then is this, wasn't put up for discussion long before this. It has to do with the effect that clear and present danger has on the spiritually resistant human soul. These young men had plenty of occasions earlier to be genuinely impressed by the person and work of their school's headmaster. He certainly knows his stuff as far as the Bible's concerned. And he takes charge of situations and he's absolutely fearless in the face of conflict. And he preaches sermons to die for, not like other rabbis, sermons to die from. The raising of the widow's son at Nyan must have presented a unique and, you might think, formative challenge to their thinking. This is absolutely incredible. The tenderness, the mercy, the power of raising that young man from the dead and then returning him to his mother. But remember that on that amazing evening outside Nyan, 
their lives had been in no danger. After all, they're 12 healthy young men. They witnessed something spectacular, like the raising of another young man, not unlike them, from the dead. And what do healthy young men, who are safely ashore, not in fear of their lives, what do healthy young men do? They think to themselves, Wow! That's spectacular! He raised him from the dead. Let's see that again. Now, sometimes it takes a clear and present danger to drive home the point that Jesus saves. He saves. Not just that he's a pretty amazing guy. When death suddenly, unexpectedly lays its cold hand on my neck and I'm absolutely powerless to resist its ever-tightening grip on me, what then shall I say? Shall I say that I'm in need of a teacher? That I could use a great prophet right about now? No, the fact is, at that moment, I may not be able to say anything at all, but what I really need, above all else at that moment, is a Savior, an up-close and personal Savior standing at my right hand. A Savior who's energized by a love stronger than death, more jealous for me than the grave. Now in my, pe my preaching, I generally try not to be as the scribes who in their sermons were forever quoting other scribes and rabbis. But William Hendrickson offers some insights that help us understand this sudden storm on the lake and its fury. So indulge me, if you will, as I share with you a somewhat longer quote from William Hendrickson's New Testament commentary. The Sea of Galilee, he says is located in the north of the Valley of the Jordan. It is about 13 miles in length and seven and one-half miles in width. It lies approximately 680 feet below the level of the Mediterranean. Its bed is a depression surrounded by hills, especially on the east side with its precipitous cliffs. When cool currents rush down from Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level or from elsewhere, and through narrow passages between the steep hills collide with the heated air above the lake basin, this downrush is impetuous. The violent winds whip the water into a fury, causing high waves that splash over bows, side rails, etc. of any vessel that happens to be plying the water surface. In the present instance, the fishing craft, swamped by towering billows, was becoming waterlogged, the toy of the raging elements. It's just as it was back in the days of Jonah on the Mediterranean, or as the later shipwreck of the Apostle Paul en route to Rome, Seasoned veterans, experienced men of the sea, the saltiest of them, know not what to do. They do all they can, and then having done it, they grimly wait for the sea to finish its work. Grimly wait 
today. In this case, having lowered the sails, you can be sure, and dropped anchor, and having done everything else that experienced fishermen and sons of fishermen knew to do, they came to Jesus and they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Apolumatha, we're lost, ruined, perishing. I can recall a few things from that late February night of my brain aneurysm almost nine years ago. I remember waking up from a sound sleep with a headache, several orders of magnitude beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. I remember asking my poor Mary Lou to please dial 911. I dimly remember vomiting with the sheer unrelenting pain of it. Waiting for the ambulance, I remember at one point raising my right arm to heaven, asking the Lord to receive me, because I was absolutely certain I was about to die. I remember the EMTs loading me feet first into the ambulance. It was an hour or a little bit more than an hour past midnight on February 26th, and that's the last that I remember until the middle of May. Master, Master, we're perishing. It seems they actually thought he'd like to know that he's about to die too, with them, that we're all going to die together. But this man has other plans. He still has ahead of him all that the Father had given him to do, and it absolutely must be done. And he must be the one to do it, not for his own sake, but for the sake of all those the Father had given him before the world was. And the hour that work was finished, the hour he himself finished it, had not yet come. (coughs) So, he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped. And it became calm. Not calm used as an adjective describing the sea. The word that Luke uses, the word the Holy Spirit provides here, is a noun. A noun. Jesus rises from the bench, he speaks the authoritative word of command, and there settled upon the sea a sudden, perceptible calmness, an almost palpable stillness of things. Suddenly, at his command, the lake is a mirror. It's a sheet of glass. And turning his face inboard again, he said to them, Where is your faith? Having considered the perilous deep, these 13 men faced, and with it their perfect deliverance by the mere command of Jesus, a deliverance that is so perfect, so timely, so marvelous, that it prompted the question, who then is this? (coughs) We now need to return once more to the pressing demand that their question makes upon us all. Who then is this? That it commands even the winds and the water, and they 
obey him. Have you ever considered how significant it is, beloved, that Luke describes the posing of the question under under discussion, but does not answer it? Luke doesn't, and he doesn't give the impression the disciples at this point were able to answer it either. It's a question left open for us who read it. For me, for you. Is Jesus an ordinary man? Yes, he is. And, no, he isn't. Like you and me, he grew hungry going without food. He grew thirsty under the high heat of the Middle Eastern sun. He grew tired and sleepy after hours of labor, and like you and me, he was tempted in all points a man can ever be tempted. He was in all these matters and more an entirely ordinary man. And yet the winds and the waves obey him. They obeyed him. Even in those days he walked the hot pavement of Capernaum and the flooded lurching deck of a storm-tossed fishing boat. They obeyed him then. How much more now that he reigns from his mediatorial throne in heaven, the winds and the waves obey him, beloved. And the demons obeyed him. And the fevers obeyed him. And death itself was compelled to obey him on that road outside Nyan. All all nature obeys him. And so now, do you actually think a little mass of cancerous tissue in your body or the body of someone you love isn't going to obey him? Or that little ruptured aneurysm bleeding into your brain? Or that coma that today holds your loved one in its grip? What about the stony, unregenerate hearts of your children? Won't they obey him? Or the stony, unregenerate heart of your wife or your husband? Is there no hope for them? Is there no hope of a positive change when he commands, will not all nature obey? You see, there's an important corollary to that excellent question the disciples ask one another in the 25th verse. They ask one another, who then is this? You've got to settle that matter in your own heart and then settle with it a corollary question. What can this man, Jesus, not do? What problem lies beyond Jesus' power to solve once he determines to solve it? Who in all creation lies beyond his power to save once he's determined to save? The biblical Christian alone, of all the genuinely hurting and bewildered and terrified dying people on earth, the Christian alone is able to face final disaster and ruin with the Christ-like composure that he freely offers those who love him. Christ Jesus, he alone 
is our refuge and our strength, a present help in our distress. We will not therefore be afraid, though all the earth should be removed, though mountains great be hurled into the ocean's depths, though seas may roar and foam and billows shake the shore, though mountains tremble at their power. Be still, he says in that great 46th psalm that launched the Reformation. Be still and know that I am God. Who then is this? An ordinary man? Yes. And? No. Amen.